are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, we are exploring how that relationship gets worked out in real life with one of the current Sinai and Synapses fellows. Sinai and Synapses is a two-year fellowship committed to elevating the discourse surrounding religion and science and where the five of us first met. So, without further ado, our guest today is the Raymond F. Shinazi Scholar in Bioethics and Jewish Thought in the Center for Ethics at Emory University. He's the professor of medicine and of religion and is the founding director of the Food Studies and Ethics Program at Emory University. In addition to being an ordained rabbi, he is the founder and co-editor of the Journal of Jewish Ethics and author of several books. I want to welcome to the podcast, Jonathan Crane. Thank you so much for having me, Zach. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it is wonderful to um, finally get a chance to connect with you. You have a lot going on, (laughs) it seems, in your biography. Um, A lot of books being published, a lot of work being done in ethics, in religion, in medicine. You are an ordained rabbi as well as a full professor. Um, Just figuring out where to start in in getting to know you a little bit better— Maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about what's occupying your headspace these days. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I'm very much interested in understanding how and why people are responding to current events as they do. And there are so many that are provoking us in a variety of different ways. Uh, Everything from the pandemic to racial tensions to ongoing conflicts, to wars that are starting up and wars that are ending, to climate change, to uh, how we are unfortunately getting increasingly sick from the food that our civilization feeds to us. And there's a whole host. The list goes on and on. And so I'm very curious about how we, uh, as individuals, as communities, as societies, as countries, civilizations, respond to these challenges and what sort of resources we bring to bear on our deliberations through figuring out what to do with these circumstances, which ones we prioritize as more urgent, which ones we kick the can down the road and say that technology will solve it sometime in the future, uh, and which ones we actually tell ourselves that this is the time and this is the place and we are the people to actually deal with the mess. So in in your professional opinion, how how are we handling the current mess that we find ourselves. <laughs> it depends, in. of course, uh, on whom you are talking about <laughs> and which which topics. I think some uh, we are handling better, uh, and certainly depending on the scale. So some institutions, schools, or communities, or cities, or states, um, and even a few countries are dealing with their tensions uh, and and conflicts uh, in very creative ways and are showing market uh, success. Um, toward reaching certain kinds of goals. Uh, So, for example, New Zealand has done an extraordinary job of protecting its population uh, from the ravages of COVID-19, but it's done so at an expense of closing down international tourism. And so that itself demonstrates an ethical deliberation. They saw two things that are good. One is tourism, and the other good is their own public's health. And so they decided that in this instance, one should take priority when they are in tension with each other. Uh, Whereas other countries have decided to to go different routes uh, and prioritize other things instead of the public's health. 
And we can see how that plays out. Uh, so it really depends on what topic you you want to focus in on and at what scale and what time frame uh, before you can really begin to give the assessment on whether they are succeeding or not. Mm. It seems there are a few countries in the world that handled the COVID outbreak worse than the United States. Um, and that might just be biased because I'm in it. But it seems like the idea of there being something that we would have to collectively get behind and give up some of our individual liberties in order to better serve the whole is just so antithetical to this uh, American cowboy spirit that we were sunk before the ship left the dock. Um, do you, did you do you see any of 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 that in in the why we were so poorly prepared and handled it so badly? So uh, different countries, and America is no exception here. Uh, champion different notions of success and what their uh, national story is. So we do have this myth here in the United States of uh, ind rugged individualism. Uh, and one of the challenges, and perhaps you can reflect on this too, is this pursuit of self-interest has amazing um, power and it has developed an incredible goods for America and Americans and the world writ large. But at the other hand, uh, it also makes us extremely vulnerable, especially when there are uh, challenges like uh, a pandemic or a challenge like climate change that impact everyone and no one can, can uh, find uh, safety because everybody is implicated and impacted by these challenges. So rugged individualism is now facing uh, a, a challenge from, from without from outside of it. Hmm. And one of the things that I have been impressed with are those communities here within the United States, sub-national communities, so certain cities or uh, religious communities that have demonstrated that the pursuit of self-interest is perhaps not as good as the pursuit of enlightened self-interest. And when I say enlightened self-interest, it means taking other people's interests into consideration as well, like the public's interests. And so they adjust and, and make uh, a, um, changes in their practices and in their policies so as to protect the community as well as trying to champion uh, individual uh, pursuits as well. Hmm. Yeah, I, I've, seen, I've seen pockets of that as well. Do you, do you think there's a, a generational gap here that um, younger generations are more communally focused and older generations less so? No, on the contrary. I think it's flipped. No? I think that uh, hmm. at least here in the Atlanta area, um, I have seen uh, the elderly population be much more vigilant and taking care of themselves and and doing what is necessary, not only to take care of themselves, but to protect the public writ large and not engage in risky business, risky behaviors, I should say. Uh, whereas younger generations, um, some of them uh, understand uh, the seriousness of this public health issue. 
and also follow vigilant protocols. And then there are, uh, I would say, a, a fairly sizable minority of younger populations that still engage in cavalier behavior. That's interesting that you would say it that way because it's been it's been noted um, many times by by folks that the younger generations are more globally minded, having grown up in a digitally in a digital world connected by the internet all the time. They they think of themselves more as citizens of the world as opposed to citizens of a particular um, ethnic or local municipality. Um, but when it comes to this particular uh, crisis, that they are acting more, uh, more reckless and less in terms of the the collective good, and that's interesting. It seems like there's a lot of of different factors at play in in any particular crisis. Or, or well, I think you're right about that. I and and now that i'm thinking about it i think that you're stumbling onto something really interesting here is that perhaps the younger generations are more globally minded in regards to social and political issues but when it comes to public health issues to physical issues about our uh, bodily existence i don't know whether that global mindedness translates uh, that there's something about the the pre-digital um, person who's not a digital native, who has a, a greater sense of embodiment and understands just how vulnerable, radically vulnerable we are to uh, each other and to the broader environment, uh, that perhaps digital natives are less I- inherently attuned to. Now, that is something interesting to think about as a, as a person who is like a first-generation digital not really a digital native, a digital, what would you call someone who grew up analog and then turned digital in early teens? Uh, a digital colonist? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I can see both sides of that. Um, I, I want to I wanna shift and ask you a question about something that you brought up a little bit earlier. Um, talking about public health crises and how we deal with them. And you mentioned our modern world, our modern way of producing food and of eating and how that is poisoning our bodies. And I know there's been a lot said uh, on this topic, both scientifically and pseudoscientifically. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit to the scope of the work that you've done. I know you've you've written an entire book on ethical eating. So that book, uh, Eat, Eating Ethically, Religion and Science for a Better Diet, explores uh, an old idea that the Abrahamic traditions championed um, many, many decades ago. Hundreds and thousands of years ago. I, <laughs> Many yeah, decades ago. <laughs> um, in a previous millennia, uh, that uh, built on an ancient Greek and, and Roman idea, classical idea of satiety, that one should eat until one is sated, until and, and not until one ha- has um, been glutted. And this notion of eating until one is sated uh, these religious traditions in, insist is uh, a kind of eating strategy, a consumption strategy, where you listen to your body and your body tells you when you have eaten enough. 
And it does not mean that you have eaten enough. Uh, it does not mean that in this one particular meal, you have eaten enough calories or eaten enough protein or eaten enough micronutrients. But on the whole, if one eats this way, uh, eating until you have become sated uh, and you do this chronically, it is far healthier for your body than if you eat until you have filled your belly um, or glutted yourself. This is not to say that you should not eat um, an occasional festive meal. Indeed, every religious tradition mandates festive meals, like, for example, Easter uh, feast or um, the Eid at the end of Ramadan or a Passover uh, meal. Uh, these feasts are designed specifically to be special, but they can only be special in the context of a calendar year where you are not eating a festive meal every single day. <laughs> if you did that, that would be uh, maladaptive biologically and also transgressive according to the religious traditions. And contemporary science of nutrition has is corroborating this ancient idea that what is healthy and also what these traditions say is what is holy um, is actually biologically adaptive. Our bodies are designed to eat until we are sated um, and all, only on occasion eat beyond that point. So the book tries to explore these ideas of the distinction between maladaptive and adaptive eating, between healthy uh, healthy and unhealthy eating, unholy and holy eating, uh, and bring it together into conversation with contemporary science. Um, I, and my teaching continues to explore some of these ideas uh, here at Emory. I teach a variety of courses that uh, a suite of courses that fold into the food studies and ethics program that we're trying to develop here. Because eating is a dynamic relationship, and any relationship is fraught with ethical decisions all the time. Eating is perhaps one of the most um, pursued relationships that we all, or engaged relationships that we have in our lives. Um, and we need to take time in our lives, make time, uh, and, and give ourselves the, the privilege, the opportunity to pay attention to where our food comes from, uh, who is growing it, how does it get from farm to factory to, to the local restaurant and to your fork, and what are you doing with your fork? Uh, we need to be paying attention to all of these questions. Uh, so I think that um, industry and government itself have done extraordinary uh, jobs in making the food system um, incohate, um, obscure, uh, really difficult to have access to. The meat industry is notorious for hiding behind um, high walls, both physical and legal, uh, so much so that it is now a criminal uh, in activity to engage in investigative journalism into certain uh, in certain states when you want to go investigate what's going on on anim factory uh, farming uh, entities. So this does not breed transparency, and it certainly does not inculcate trust. And so it this is killing us. It, it's making it uh, difficult for us to trust the food system. It's making it difficult for us to um, trust not only what 
the food is and how it gets to us, but also what it's doing to us bodily. We can see it in our ballooning waistlines and our deteriorating health. Um, a lot of that sounds familiar. Uh, I think a lot of us have heard this, uh, this call to more humane ways of, of treating animals and livestock, of more attentive ways to um, think about the things that we put in our bodies. But you mentioned a phrase that I don't know if I've heard before, um, holy eating. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how the um, how eating can be a holy practice. So every religious tradition that I have come across spends a lot of time and energy and spills a lot of ink across time and space thinking about what it means to be a, an eater of the world. Uh, and mm. the world, food has to be, if, if it's going to be food, it has to be not your own body. Uh, that you're eating. So it can't be your fingernails. It can't be your finger. It can't be your arm. You got to eat something that's not you. And so that means that it's a relationship with something outside of yourself. Mm. And so these religious traditions, Eastern and Western, Native and, and Global, um, spend a lot of time thinking about what that relationship should look like. And they describe and prescribe what they consider to be appropriate ways of managing those consumptive relationships, eating. And so what eating looks like, say for Judaism, that's the tradition I'm most familiar with, looks a peculiar way uh, in its details than, say, how a Christian might understand to be appropriate and holy eating. But that's not to say that Christianity and Judaism are mutually allergic about um, the importance of eating. They just have different details about how to think these things through. Hmm. So when I say holy eating, um, every again, as I, I, I hold that religious traditions take eating very seriously. Uh, and um, our civilizations, our companies try to do a lot of effort to make us forget those <laughs> commitments that our traditions encourage us to, to think about, or they try to capitalize on them. And I think one of our challenges as, as um, creatures of the 21st century is to reclaim those tried and true religiously based notions of eating. They were de developed over a lot of time and a lot of space for good reasons. And we should know that for the vast majority of these religious uh, traditions, views on eating, were developed in contexts of scarcity and agricultural vulnerability. They did not have um, big monocropping technologies. They did not have drip irrigation. They did not have aquaponics. Uh, they were exposed to the to the vagaries of the natural world, and they did not have supermarkets, and they certainly did not have two-hour delivery systems to to get what they wanted uh, to their front doors. Uh, we live in a context, for the most part, of extraordinary superabundance, 
And uh, eating just because we can is not necessarily eating everything that we can just because we can is maladaptive biologically and contrary to what our religious traditions teach us. So if there's someone out there who would like to start thinking deep, deeper about where their food comes from, who wants to um, change their purchasing habits such that it causes the least amount of suffering in the world. And so they go to the, to the grocery store and they choose to spend an extra dollar fifty on eggs that say cage-free or free-range, or they decide to buy some bread that says no GMO or organic or any number of these uh, pictures and badges and signs and phrases that uh, grace our foods these days. Do any of them mean anything? <laughs> like, can we trust those labels to help us to make better choices? Well, we can food? trust them that they're trying to sell us something. Absolutely. You can trust, that, <laughs> trust the companies to market uh, and uh, attract and seduce and entice. Absolutely. There is only one term that has legal um, definition and teeth to it, and that is the term organic. In order for uh, a product uh, to claim that it is organic, it must meet certain legal standards of where its ingredients come from and how those ingredients are produced and manufactured. Um, everything else, any other marketing claim that is found on a package is just that. It is a marketing claim. There is no mm. standards outside of that term. So anything that says that it's healthy, that it says that it's all natural, that it has um, no GMOs, that may or may not be true, but it doesn't mean anything. Um Anything that has corn in it is necessarily a GMO product because contemporary corn is, um, unless it's some rare heritage breed, it is a, a genetically modified organism. Um, so one would have to search uh, far and wide to find um, to find products that are truly not impacted by, say, genetically modified um, efforts, technologies. So you asked, what can a person do? Uh, a person can uh, look at their purchasing practices and figure out what their values are and what their highest priorities are and figure out how their purchasing practices align with, reflect, and reinforce those values. I tell my students um, they should try when they go to the local grocery store is to just walk around the outside of the grocery store, the outermost mm -hmm. layer. Um, do not go through the middle aisles of a grocery store because those are usually where you fi find barcoded products. And those things that are barcoded are typically manufactured. And manufactured products mm -hmm. are those that are, uh, for the most part, unhealthy. The fresh produce is on the outside. The fresh dairy, the fresh uh, meats, those are typically um, offered on the outside of grocery stores. I remember some time ago there being some legal battle with McDonald's because they advertised their chicken nuggets as um, made with 
white meat or something made with 100% white meat. Um, and the it was actually made with, with some slurry of chicken parts. Um, but white meat was included mm-hmm. in that. And so technically by saying made with 100% white meat, they could say like, no, we used 100% white meat in it. And so we didn't lie technically. It's just also bones and cartilage and things that are all right. chopped up like dog food. Exactly. So companies will go to great lengths, especially those companies that use animal products will go to great lengths to um, to misinform the public. And they do this for a variety of different reasons. We don't need to get into uh, all of those details. It's uh, complicated, but we should know that... Mm. They, they, there are very creative industries uh, that that make that try to assuage uh, consumer concerns and make them feel comfortable in buying their products. It occurs to me as well that a lot of a lot of the places that have options of fresh ingredients and fresh produce and fresh um, locally sourced whatnot are places of privilege, of, of money, that there's a, a lot of places, especially in the cities, that we call food deserts, where there's not a supermarket within within the ability to get to without taking several buses. And you're kind of forced to get your food from the local bodega. And a lot of that is questionable at best. And the food that is more... Um, affordable because of government subsidies to things like corn and wheat are things that are almost completely just corn that is flavored in different ways to look like real food, but is not actually real food. So the it, it strikes me that that a lot of the uh, the fight to help America to figure out how to get its food priorities back in line is also an issue of of justice for our underserved populations. Uh, uh, yes, you're, you're right. There's a lot of racism that's embedded in contemporary zoning, uh, it, not just contemporary, but historical zoning practices about where grocery stores can and should be located. There were um, banking um, uh, practices that allowed for certain kinds of businesses to be established in certain kinds of neighborhoods and not established in other kinds of neighborhoods. Uh, there's a lot of sexism that's involved in this and, and educationism as well about who can and should have rightful access to healthier foods. Um, there's classism that's embedded in all of these uh, practices as well. Uh, we should recognize that the history of the laws governing our contemporary food environment uh, were designed precisely to continue to um, to fatten the profits of the the well off for the corporations. Uh, there were there were very few uh, incentives to actually democratize uh, access, democratize the production of food, um, and that story is quite pronounced here in the South. Um, black farmers were notoriously kept out of gaining access to capital investments to improve their farms. And so they had to eventually sell them and they, be, they become ground uh, landless. Uh, and they had to find their uh, economic wherewithal in urban areas. And so there, uh, there are 
a fraction, just a tiny percentage of all American farmers are black or brown. Even though many of the laborers are black and brown on farms, the people who actually own the farms or manage them are not minority populations. There's a historical um, a set of complicated interlocking stories about why this is the case. So you're pointing to uh, exactly why we need to have um, not just a, a dispassionate investigation into these issues, but a, a real consideration of the ethics that have been involved in many of those decisions and uh, what should the ethical values be at play as we move forward. Hmm. And thinking globally as well, um, there's there's a lot of pushback in the United States right now about genetically modified plants. Um, and I think a part of that is Monsanto is not helping by being a kind of a dastardly organization. But um, there there's push on either side when places that are being ravaged by climate change, who are dealing with long periods of drought, who can't sustain um, their populations, they're being production of like uh, vegetables that can that are more drought resistant through uh, genetic modification and using science and technology to make food easier to grow for in, in needing less water for for places. And then there are others that would say that you know we don't know the long term implications of people eating that kind of unnatural food, and we could be uh, poisoning developing nations through this. Um, do you have any insights into, into that? So I, I'm disinclined to, um, to speak about a particular company um, just because I don't know enough about what, say, Monsanto or other um, seed companies do. Uh, but it is, I think right to say that we need to have a sincere conversation about uh, the centralization of seeds uh, for farming practices. That is a complicated story that needs to be investigated from a variety of different disciplinary approaches. But we also need to recognize that climate change is real and people need to feed themselves in a sustainable fashion, no matter where they are in the world. Uh, And that if science can help by creating um, drought-resistant or flood-resistant crops, then those are goods. We don't want to put so many regulations on uh, genetically modifying uh, organisms that it puts a chill effect on these kinds of research programs. So there are goods that can be done with genetically modified uh, technologies uh, in certain places at certain times. I tend to be in that camp (laughs) as well. I also tend to be somebody who trusts science a little bit too much, maybe. just recognizing that um, technology is only as as good as the benevolence of the, of the people wielding it. Well, on that point, I'm teaching a course here at Emory called Immoral Medicine. We're looking at the Nuremberg Medical Trials in 1946-47 about what the Nazis notoriously did during World War II to their own citizens, to um, 
indigenous uh, non-German citizens, both in their clinics, their communities, as well as uh, obviously in the concentration camps. Um, and the vast majority of their uh, victims in these biomedical experiments were, were Jews and political prisoners. But uh, the, one of the things that we're coming to really appreciate in this course is that the Nazis were very much uh, guided by a utilitarian ethic, that they wanted to do what was best for the state. Um, and because that was their, that was their ultimate goal, that, justif- that goal justified any means. It justified doing heinous things to uh, innocent victims. Uh, so we do need to be wary about science uh, that is unbridled, unregulated. Um, pursuing science or, or knowledge just for the sake of knowledge uh, is a good, but if it is done without any kind of ethical constraints, it can, unfortunately, uh, history shows us, um, it can lead to disastrous uh, programs of investigation and also results. Right. Um, now, I mean, I think they argued that they they were operating under a certain ethic, a certain ethic that the individual suffering is not as important as the greater good, um, which, I mean, many in the world would argue is an not ethical ethic. Um, how do we how do we police ethics? Hmm. Um, by continuing to uh, put it on the public's um, ra- radar, we need to have conversations about what our values are, uh, and to um, have ongoing conversations about what are our convictions, what should be our commitments. Uh, this is. Uh, True not only in the science arena and not only true in the food arena and public health arena, but it's also true in our social arena. What what sort of values should be guiding um, our commitments to vulnerable populations? Uh, we need to have these conversations from time to time, and they're going to be uncomfortable, and we need to be comfortable sitting in that discomfort as individuals and as a society. <clears throat> but to defer mm-hmm. to... Uh, political elites to defer to academic elites, um, and I'm putting elites in in air quotes um, <laughs> by by delegating or relegating certain kinds of conversations to others. We absolve ourselves of participating in these uh, conversations that necessarily should involve as many people as possible. So, changing gears a little bit. What was it that led you initially to the Sinai and Synapses Fellowship? As somebody who's interested in religion and uh, contemporary issues, uh, the, con- the tensions, the dynamic relationship between religion and science it, it is, has been there from the very beginning, uh, and it's uh, as alive as ever. So this is perhaps the best venue um, to... Uh, to interact with clergy, professionals, academic, policy people, science people. Uh, it, everybody's curious about how best to appreciate um, the wisdom that is derived from uh, religious traditions, as well as insights that can be derived from scientific explorations of the world. Has there been anything in um, 
in this fellowship that has surprised you? Uh, the, the ease with which it is uh, possible to relate uh, in deep ways with people who come from different religious communities as well as different scientific commitments. Um, mm. the, I have found for the many years that I've now been involved with Sinai and Synapse um, that the people are really genuinely nice and curious <laughs> and welcoming and generous uh, and w- willing to hear somebody else's perspective, even if they don't necessarily um, agree with it or even fully understand it. And that's been really refreshing, especially in this milieu, uh, this contemporary political milieu here in the United States, where people um, demean and damn others who uh, are not waving the same kind of flag that they wear, wave. Yeah. And that, that's the main criteria for admission into the fellowship is you must be curious and kind. So as we approach the end of our time together, I want to ask you one final question. Um, feel free to take as much time as you need. Um, a question I've asked every other fellow before you, and that is, what is one thing that you wish everyone knew about the world? That it's vast. It's big. And because it's so big, you can zoom out and look at it from 30,000 feet uh, and still only see a fraction of it. And you can zoom in and take a microscope to it and dig deep down, but you're only going to see a tiny fraction of it too. It's big. Uh, and that when I talk about the world being big, I'm talking about not just uh, the, the natural world, which is awesome and intricate and fragile. But I'm also talking about the social world. It's also variegated and complicated. And I'm also talking about the world that's within each one of us. There's so much within each person that is still a mystery to be experienced and to be appreciated. And that's one of the things that I hope that all folks can come to really appreciate is that you can learn new things about yourself. May not be things that you want to be learning, may not be things that you're proud of about yourself, (laughs) things that you might want to change, but there is always something new to learn about oneself uh, if you are willing to pay attention to it. So the world is vast. And uh, I really do hope that people are willing to be courageous explorers of it. Hmm. Thank you for that. That is essentially the synopsis of the book that I've been writing. Oh, tell me about the book. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you so, so much for being here. Um, and for sharing some of the work that you're doing, some of the passion that drives you. And thank you for the work that you are doing through the fellowship. And I look forward to reading and hearing more about what you do. Well, thank you so much, Zach. It's been a real pleasure and delight talking with you today.